Hi all, Ian here from Endless Summers. You may have noticed that this episode is labelled as part one. That is because the script for this series ended up being such a long one that I decided to split it across two episodes. This episode will cover the first two tests of the series, whilst the second one, which will come out in a week's time, will cover the remaining three. We'd like to give a shout out to listener Jeremy, who emailed through some great feedback, and to Mezapesa for leaving our first Apple podcast review. Really appreciate the effort from both of you. And now, on to the episode. Welcome to Endless Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 2, 1897-98 vs England. Don't worry, darling. The 1896 Australians stopped in the United States and New Zealand on the way home. The New Zealand League was the first visit by a full Australian side. A New South Wales side had toured previously. As the matches were played against the odds, usually between 15 or 18 New Zealanders, none of them were first class. The final match against the New Zealand 15 went down to the wire, with the Australians winning by five wickets in the last over of a match, where the pace of Ernie Jones had taken 13 wickets. It would be just over 30 years before New Zealand became a Test nation, whilst another 16 years after that for the first recognised Test match between Australia and New Zealand. Following the tour, the Australian players fell back into the new rhythms of cricket, with the Sheffield Shield competition into its fifth season. New South Wales dominated, winning all four of their matches to claim their second consecutive Shield title. The standout performer was McKibben, who took 44 wickets, including five five-wicket hauls and two 10-wicket matches, whilst also averaging 50 with the bat. He was supported by Bill Howe, who took 20 wickets. The other standout for New South Wales was up-and-comer Monty Noble. Whilst the all-rounder's bowling was seldom required, he started with the bat, topping the run charts and averages, including 153 not out against Victoria. Following on from his century against the last English touring side, this rising star of Australian cricket was attracting attention for higher honours. Meanwhile, planning for the next English side to tour Australia was underway. Buoyed by two successful ventures, the Melbourne and Sydney clubs took a joint stake in organising a tour for the following season. They again approached Stoddart, who led the previous tour, to head the squad. After agreeing to captain the side, Stoddart put together his team. It featured three players who had come on the previous tour, Briggs, Richardson and McLaren, whilst Hearn, Hayward, Wainwright and Ranjitsenji had previous test experience against Australia. Five uncapped players would round out the squad. Wicketkeepers Bill Storer and Jack Board, right-handed batsmen Jack Mason and Frank Drouve, and George Hurst, a Yorkshire left-armer who was one of the best swing bowlers in England, whilst also being handy with the bat, having completed the double of 1,000 runs and 100 wickets in the season for the first time in 1896. The absence of Bobby Peel, who had been so successful on past Australian tours, was noted. Peel had been drunk during a county game and couldn't even work out which direction to bowl. Rumours were later passed down that he urinated on the pitch, although these are disputed. Given his county captain was one of the English selectors in Lord Hawke, it hardly made a good impression. As such, he was banned from all cricket, ending his test career. His dismissal from Yorkshire meant the county was on the lookout for a left-arm spinner, a position they would fill with a young Wilford Rhodes the next year. The announcement of the squad caused issues in New South Wales, particularly with the inclusion of Ranji. The government had become particularly focused on keeping out non-white people from the colony and was in the process of passing a deterrent tax which will require non-white people to pay £100, over 16000 Australian dollars today, in order to enter. Ranji was one of the biggest draw cards of the English, and after much wrangling from cricket authorities, they convinced the government to waive the fee. 
This law would foreshadow some of the more harsh and discriminatory practices that were to take place following Federation in 1901 under the White Australia policy. Stoddart's side arrived in Adelaide in October, playing their first match against the South Australians. There, they were confronted by the young Australian batting star Clem Hill, who scored 200 in a day in a total of 408. Not to be outdone, Ranji responded with 189 of his own, leading to a drawn game. During the third day, Ernie Jones, on his way to taking seven wickets, was no ball for throwing by the English umpire Jim Phillips, building on the concerns the English had had during their previous tour. The following match against Victoria was a tight affair, with the English coming out two wicket winners, thanks to Mason's unbeaten 128 in a chase of 305 in the final innings. Their match against New South Wales was much more convincing, winning by eight wickets, with McLaren scoring a century in each innings. The match also featured a young man named Victor Trumper, playing his third first-class match, who could only manage five and zero in his two innings. After a series of non-first-class games, the English headed to Sydney for the first test to commence on Friday the 10th of December. However, Sydney had received unexpected rain the night before the commencement of the test. The Sydney Cricket Club, who were co-sponsors of the tour and wanted to protect their investment, did not want a game shortened by a bad pitch. As such, without informing either team, they delayed the start of the game until the following Monday, giving time for the pitch to dry out. More rain followed on the Saturday, but Sunday saw much better weather. As such, the game will be played on an excellent strip for batting. The English will be without their captain for this match. Stoddart, who had already been suffering from influenza, received news of the sudden death of his mother in England. Grieving, he was in no state to play. McLaren took over leadership of the side. The delay of the match did have one positive benefit for the English as Ranji, who had been suffering from an illness of his own, had recovered sufficiently in time to take his spot. The backup wicketkeeper board was the other player left out of the 11, with Mason, Storer, Drews and Hurst all making their test debuts. For the Australians, Donnan and Giffen were left out of the last 11 from the England tour. They were replaced by Charlie McLeod and JJ Lyons. McLaren won the toss and chose to bat, opening with himself and debutante Mason. McKinnon bowled a maiden first up, with Jones being the other opening bowler. He'd chosen to bowl the end away from Jim Phillips to avoid being called for a no ball. Mason eventually opened the scoring with two off McKibben, but it was McLaren who made most of the early running, hitting McKibben behind square leg for multiple boundaries. The score had moved to 26 before the pace of Jones was too much for Mason, with the fiery Australian knocking back his leg stump for six. Haywood arrived at number three, where he was welcomed by a thunderbolt to the knee from Jones. After needing a runner for a short period, he settled enough to start scoring off the bowling. McLaren continued looking comfortable, with the score moving past 50. The bowlers were replaced with Trumbull and McLeod, but neither could generate a breakthrough. McLaren took to McLeod's bowling, hitting him for three boundaries behind point in and over, bringing up his own 50. Not to be outdone, Hayward lofted Trumbull over the infield twice. The two would continue through to lunch, taking the English to 1 for 98, with McLaren on 56 and Hayward 34. McLaren started after the break the way he had left off, with a boundary to square leg off Jones in the first over taking the score past 100. Hayward also continued at a brisk pace, bringing up his half-century soon after lunch with a series of cuts. The 100 partnership was raised after only 93 minutes as the two continued to attack. There was a series of close calls with balls struck in the air, but none went to hand. Trot tried himself with no luck before returning to Trumbull, but no help was coming from the pitch, which was playing splendidly. Finally, when he had taken his score onto 72, Hayward erred, hitting Trumbull to trot at point where the Australian captain took a simple catch. He hit 10 fours in his innings and combined for a 136-run stand with his captain. New batsman Storer started with some ungainly shots, trying to smash his first ball over long on, but only succeeding in edging over the slips. He then survived a close shout for LBW off McKibben. McLaren, who had moved on to 90 at this point, now faced Jones who had switched ends. 
McLaren moved slowly through the 90s, dealing in singles. He brought up his century just on the stroke of tea with a cut shot off Trumbull for four, which was well received by the crowd. The English had reached 211 with only two wickets down. The break had the desired effect for the Australians, as McLeod managed to remove McLaren for 109, caught behind. The English captain hit 15 fours and batted for just over three hours. He was replaced by Drews. The newcomer had some luck, narrowly missing being bowled before Trot dropped a simple chance. Storer continued to play aggressively, and the two moved the score past 250 before Drews hit a simple chance to Gregory off McLeod to be out for 20. Two runs later, Storer's enterprising innings ended when he was caught and bowled by Trot for 43. The English were now 5 for 268 with two new batsmen at the crease, Hurst and the recovering Ranji. Despite his illness, Ranji still batted enterprisingly, jumping out to loft the spinners over the infield. He also showed great control by taking balls from well outside off into the vacant leg side field for easy runs. At the other end, Hurst was hitting hard, a fact that saved him when Gregory dropped a sharp chance off him. He followed this up by striking a ball clear over the fence for five. The score moved quickly past 300, and the two made it to stumps for the English at 337, with both bats and well set in the 30s. Play commenced on day two with 20,000 spectators, matching the crowd from the day before. They witnessed the continual piling on of runs by the English. It didn't take long for both batsmen to move to their half-centuries. Ranji had further recovered from his illness and was in even better form than the previous day, wowing the crowd with some audacious stroke play. Trot then turned to his fastest bowler in Jones. The South Australian ruffled the batsmen somewhat, with Ranji playing and missing multiple times, whilst Hurst skied a ball that fell safe. Eventually, a Yorker from Jones snuck under Hurst's bat to bowl him, dismissing him for 62. He had put on 124 with Ranji, taking the score on to 382. Ranji, now on 59, was joined by Wainwright. The newcomer was almost out immediately, but Trot dropped the chance. Ranji, now batting with the tail, started to increase his scoring. He had trumbled for two fours in and over, helping take the score past 400. Even a broken bat caused by Jones didn't slow him down, with the replacement being just as effective. Wainwright would eventually be out for 10, bowled by Jones, but had shared a 40-run stand with Ranji. Now in partnership with Hearn, Ranji moved his score on to 94 before lunch was taken with the English on 7 for 433. It didn't take long post-lunch for Ranji to bring up his century, with a long hop from Trumbull being dispatched to the boundary. This was his second in tests, and he became the first person to make centuries in his first matches home and away. He was now playing with complete control, sending one ball from a cloud pitched on off-stump to the square leg boundary, before sending another ball pitched in the same spot past point. The pace of Jones had little impact, with the Indian Prince cutting him hard to the boundary twice. Hearn had made his way to 17 and shared a 49-run stand with his partner before he struck a hard drive back towards McLeod, who took a good catch. Briggs could only manage one before he was run out, leading the English at 9 for 477. This brought Richardson in to join Ranji, who was on 130. With the last wicket of the crease, Ranji increased his storing rate to its highest point yet. With Richardson surviving with some lucky nicks through the slips, Ranji took the score past 500, raising his personal 150 soon after. In only 31 minutes of batting, the final partnership put on 74, of which Richardson contributed 24, before Ranji was finally out, depositing McKibben into the safe hands of Gregory. His knock of 175 was considered one of the finest seen in Australia. It was made in just short of four hours batting, including 26 fours, and provided no chances to the opposition until the ball he was dismissed on. For the Australians, McLeod and Jones had both taken three wickets, but all the bowlers had come in for punishment as the English had compiled an imposing score of 551. The pitch was still playing true as the South Australian pair of Darling and Lyons arrived to open the batting. Awaiting them was Richardson. As he had done so often before, his pace ruffled the Australians, and within 15 minutes, Darling nicked off, out for seven. Iredale joined Lyons and immediately glanced the bowler for four. 
He looked far more comfortable than Lyons, who was finding it difficult to score. The English were bowling off Fury, bowling wide outside off stunt with a packed offside field. When Richardson erred and bowled a full toss, Lyons played all over it and was bowled for three. Both openers were now out with a score at 24. Hill came in and started confidently, gliding Hurst for four. He was then lucky to survive a drop chance at Sliff. Idale and Hill built their partnership from then, taking the score past 50. Idale had received a bad knock to the knee from a Hurst full toss and was struggling, eventually edging a ball from Hearn to Drews at Slip, out for 25. One run later, Hearn cleared bowl Hill for 19. This saw the Australians fall to 4 for 57. Gregory and Trot then combined to take the Australians through to 45 minutes until stumps. They managed to add 29 before in the final over of the day, Trot managed to play a ball from Briggs onto his stumps. He was out for 10, leaving the Australians at 5 for 86, heading into day 2, a disappointing result given the conditions. The beginning of day 3 saw Gregory, who was 18 not out, joined by Kelly. Kelly took a single to complete Briggs's over from the previous day, was then immediately bowled by Richardson. Gregory was seen as a big hope and was playing well, so near cut shot to the boundary to take the score past 100. New batsman Trumbull was also looking comfortable, off driving and glancing for boundaries. With Gregory moving into the 40s with little difficulty, Richardson was replaced by Hearn. This change brought about the wicket, with Gregory edging a ball to slip four short of 50. McLeod, who had suffered a finger injury the previous day and was struggling to hold the bat, came in next at 7 for 138. The injury caused him to drop the bat after playing his first ball, and throughout his innings he was constantly removing his hand from the handle whilst playing a stroke. Despite this, he opened his account with a boundary off Hearn, and through some judicious running, he took his score into double figures. Trouble managed to go past his highest test score of 35 just before the lunch break, which Australians went to at 7 for 170. Following lunch, Trumbull started with a cut for four, before taking Hayward for 10 in and over, bringing up his first test 50. With McLeod also scoring freely and moving into the 40s, the 200 was passed. McLaren then turned to the bowling of Mason. His first ball was glided behind point for four by Trumbull, whilst his third also reached the boundary, taking Trumbull to 70. However, on the fourth ball, Trumbull could only edge the ball to the keeper. He departed with a score at 228, having shared a 90-run stand with McLeod. New man McKibben managed to hang around long enough to see McLeod to his half-century, brought up with two boundaries and a single off Hearn, before McKibben was dismissed by the same bowler for a duck. When Jones fell in the next over without troubling the scorers, the Australian innings ended on 237, with McLeod not out on an even 50. Hearn was chief destroyer, finishing with 5 for 42 off 20 overs, whilst Richardson claimed 3. With the Australians trailing by 314, McLaren had little hesitation in enforcing the follow-on. Trot adjusted the batting order, opening with Iredale instead of Lyons. He would join 27-year-old left-hander Joe Darling, who strode to the crease with a massive job to do for his country. Joseph Darling was born on the 21st of November in Glen Osmond, South Australia. The son of John Darling, an on-and-off-again member of the South Australian Parliament, Darling was a naturally talented sportsman. As a 16-year-old, he scored 252 in an inter-school match, the highest score made in South Australia to that point of time. His father disapproved of his sporting interests and sent him to work on the family farm in the country for a number of years. He returned to Adelaide in the early 1890s to run a sports store and made his debut for South Australia in 1893. The following year, he scored 100 against Stoddart's touring side. It was a skill and power displayed in this innings that saw him selected for his test debut that season. Whilst he would begin his career with a golden duck, he played all five tests in that series, scoring 258 runs. He was then selected for the 1896 tour, where he topped the tour aggregates. His father, who had disapproved of cricket, became a fan as his son's prowess grew and would often travel interstate to watch him play and offer him rewards for the runs he scored. With Australia following on, Darling was about to commence the innings that would establish him as one of the premier batsmen in Australian cricket. Both openers started cautiously. 
Most runs came in singles and twos as they negotiated the challenges posed by Richardson and Hearn. After 30 minutes of batting, both had moved on to double figures and the shots started to become more expansive. This led to a bowling change, with Briggs coming on and troubling Iredale, eventually bowling him with one that kept low for 18. At 37, McLeod came to the crease and began by turning a ball to the square leg boundary. At this point, Darlin began dealing almost exclusively in boundaries. Despite McLaren posting three men on the leg side, Darlin continuously bisected them, bringing up the team 50 off Briggs. Hurst and Hayward were tried, but it had little impact as Darling raced past his own half-century. Before stumps, Richardson was brought back, but his pace only helped Darling, who hooked the Surrey speedster for four. The final over saw Darling drive Mason for two more boundaries, taking score to 80, which at this stage included 16 fours. With the McLeod having made his way to 20, the Australians finished the day on one for 126. Day four commenced with the Australians still 188 behind. McLeod reduced that deficit by four with a cut shot off Richardson in the first over. Following this, though, 20 minutes went by of only one run scored. Richardson, bowling with the wind behind him, sent a beamer past Darling's face. In his next over, another full toss knocked over McLeod's leg stump. McLeod, who was partially deaf, left his crease and started walking to the pavilion, having failed to hear the umpire's call of no ball. The ball was collected by a fielder and returned to the keeper, who pulled one of the remaining stumps out of the ground, whereupon the umpire, the Englishman Phillips, gave him out. McLeod claimed he was not attempting a run, but the dismissal stood he made 26 and shared a 98-run partnership with Darling. Darling was then joined by his fellow South Australian left-hander, Hill. Hill, who was only 21 years old, started brightly. He dominated the scoring, quickly racing to 26 with shots on both sides of the wicket. Darling, who had only added four runs in the 45 minutes at the start of the day, now found his groove. Two boundaries off Briggs took him to within one shot of the century, which he brought up in the next over from Hearn with a characteristic boundary. The applause from the crowd seemingly distracted him as he was out the next over trying to loft Briggs over the outfield. His 101 had taken just over three hours, including 19 fours, and he became the first left-hander to score a test century. At three for 191, Hill was now joined by Gregory. Hill continued in his previous fashion, racing to his half-century, which was brought up just on lunch, with the deficit having been reduced to an even 100. Gregory was comfortable playing second fiddle after lunch as Hill drove the score forward. The two ran well between the wickets, whilst Hill was still finding the boundary consistently. When Hill had reached 68, he tried for a quick single. He was well short of his ground, but Stora threw the ball wide, leaving Hill to reach safely, and five runs being added to his account with the overthrows. Gregory, who was now settled, opened up his scoring more, cutting Hearn for four. He managed to take his personal score onto 31 when he hit a ball to Hearn at short third man. Hearn fumbled, leading Gregory to set off for a run. Sent back by his partner, he was run out. He had taken the score under 269, having shared a 78-run partnership with Hill. Trumbull couldn't repeat his batting effort the previous innings and was out for two. Lyons came in at the fall of the fifth wicket. Shortly after his arrival, he was struck in the ribs by a full ball from Richardson, which required several minutes of treatment. He responded by hitting the same bowler for a full-blooded drive to the boundary. Soon after, a boundary by Lyons off Hearn took the Australians past 300. Hill then moved into the 90s, whilst the Australians reached 314 and erased the deficit. Four runs later, Lyons mishit a ball from Hearn to Hayward and was out for 25. The Australian captain came to the crease as Hill approached his century. He'd moved to 96 when Hearn beat him with a quicker one, knocking over his stumps and ending his fabulous innings one boundary short of a century. His innings had just taken over two hours and included 11 fours. The Australian league was still only seven as Kelly joined Trot. On either side of T, the two put on 61 runs. Kelly outscored his captain, lofting Briggs back over his head on multiple occasions. Trot made his way to a handy 25, but just when there was a possibility of building a defendable total, he chopped the ball back onto his wicket from the pace of Richardson. 
Jones could only manage three before being trapped LBW by the same bowler. McKibben helped Kelly take the score past 400, but was last out with a score on 408. Kelly was left not out on 46. Hearn, who had claimed the final wicket, finished with four to go with his five in the first innings. The Australians had a lead of 94, not enough on the pitch that was still very good for batting. The English opened with Mason and McLaren. With only 30 minutes left in the day, the two managed to go at a run a minute and survive to the end, despite a couple of loud appeals from the Australians. The final day went as expected. The two openers scored with little trouble, racing past 50 and towards victory. Mason was dismissed within 15 runs of the target for 32, bowled by McKibben, but Ranji joined his captain and saw his side home for a nine-wicket victory. McLaren ended on an even 50 not out to go his first inning century, leading his side to a 1-0 lead in the series. The MCG would be the site of the second test, starting on New Year's Day 1898. The Australians made one change. After George Giffen rejected the opportunity to play in the test, dissatisfied with the terms offered by the Melbourne Cricket Club, Monty Noble was selected to make his debut, having been performed well for New South Wales. He took the place of Lyons, with the first test of this series being the last in Lyons' career that had spanned over 10 years. Randry was suffering from a throat infection and was a doubtful starter. With Stoddart still too distressed to play, the English went into the match unchanged. This time, Trot won the toss and chose to bat on another excellent batting strip. On an ideal day for cricket, over 25,000 spectators attended to watch proceedings commence. They witnessed Darling opening the batting, now joined at the top by McLeod. As always, Richardson was dangerous and commenced with four maidens. Most of the scoring was off Hurst at the other end. Briggs was used to help change ends for Richardson, but Darling hit him for two boundaries. Darling continued to punish Briggs, hitting him for a further five boundaries and dominating the opener partnership, scoring 36 of the first 43 runs before he hit Briggs to Hurst at mid-off, becoming the first wicket. He was replaced by his fellow left-hander Hill, who had quickly passed McLeod's score. First test destroyer Hearn was tried and immediately drew Hill's edge, although Stora could not complete the catch. McLeod finally found some gaps in the field just prior to lunch, taking score into 19 at the break, with the Australians moving on to 70. Following lunch, McLaren tried Mason at the bowling crease, but both batsmen handled him with ease. The scoring rate was now ticking over nicely, with 100 coming up shortly after the break. McLaren cycled through his bowlers, but they had little impact. McLeod struck Richardson to the boundary, bringing up his 50 after over two hours of batting. He'll pass that mark soon after with a cut off the same bowler. Haywood was now introduced to the bowling crease. His first over went for eight, but in his second, he had Hill out edging a pull shot through to the keeper. Hill had made 58, continuing his good form from the previous test, and shared an 124-run stand with McLeod. Gregory replaced him at the crease and managed to see through to tee without further loss, with McLeod having made his way to 73. The tee break saw the batsmen reverting to scoring in singles for a while before they began opening their shoulders, McLeod hitting both Hayward and Briggs to the leg side boundary. Gregory brought up the 200 with the cutoff Briggs, whilst McLeod moved into the 90s soon after. He moved through the nervous 90s quickly, bringing up his first test century with the three off Hearn. The Victorian batsman's achievement was cheered enthusiastically by the local supporters. The two batsmen took the score under 237 without much difficulty. This led McLaren to throw the ball to his wicketkeeper Stora. He went for seven from his first five balls, but on his six, he managed to beat the batter McLeod to bowl him. McLeod had made 112 in just over four hours of batting. Gregory was then joined by Iredale with a score at 244. Stora nearly got a second wicket, but Hayward dropped a catch off Gregory. Gregory then progressed his way to 50 just prior to stumps, finishing the day on 54. With Idale having made 12, the Australians were in an impressive position at 3 for 283 at the end of the day. The match resumed on the Monday following the Sunday rest day, with the outstanding position the Australians were in drawing an even larger crowd than on day one. Idale and Gregory started the day with intent, scoring it over a run a minute, bringing up the 300 quite quickly. 
Gregor was handling the pace of Richardson with ease, hitting him for a leg-side boundary and taking his score under 71. This saw the reintroduction of Briggs, whose third ball kept low to bowl Gregory without adding to his score. At 4 for 310, Iredale was joined by his captain. Iredale took most of the strike early on in the partnership, handling most of the bowls with little difficulty. He moved to his own 50 with a cut-off for four off Hurst. At this stage, Trotter only made two runs in 40 minutes of batting, but from here he found his own groove, improving his rate of scoring, hitting Storer for two boundaries, one of which was a half chance in the outfield, which Hearn could only graze with his fingertips. At lunch, Australia had moved on to 370, with Iredale on 59 and Trot on 21. Following the break, Trot became the dominant partner. He took Richardson for 10 in an over, which saw Richardson's figures go to 0 for 100 to this point in the innings, whilst he was also vicious on Storer. This took the Australian total past 400. McLaren made a double change with the bowling, but had little immediate impact, with Trot bringing up his own 50. Iredale, who had survived a couple of near chances on his way to 89, was finally out, caught a point off Hurst. He shared a 124-run partnership with his captain, taking the Australians to 5 for 434. This brought the debutante noble to the crease. He started nicely, driving Hurst twice to the boundary. He had made his way to 17 when he prepared to leave a ball from Richardson, which was pitching outside the off stump. The ball jagged in upon bouncing, knocking back Noble's middle stump. Trumbull replaced him. The two batsmen continued the scoring weight, with both hitting Mason for boundaries, but Trumbull fell for 14 off the same bowler. This brought the Australians to 7 for 478 as T approached, with Kelly joining Trot. The pair made it to the break without further loss, with Trot taking his score under 66. Resuming with Australia on 481, Kelly played two pull shots for four, whilst Trot lofted Hearn back over his head to the boundary. This saw the 500 come up. Trot took his score onto 79 with three off Hearn, but a mischeck drive off Briggs saw him depart for that score in the next over. Kelly followed shortly after, whilst Jones was run out trying to steal singles. The last three wickets had fallen for 12 runs. The Australians still had posted a mammoth 520, scored in 185 overs. Briggs was the best of the bowlers with three wickets, but five of the top six of the Australian batting order making it to 50, there was a long way to go for the English to make this a competitive match. Half an hour remained in the day for the English to start their innings. McLaren and Mason opened, whilst Trumbull and McKibben started for the Australians. McLaren received a life when McKibben dropped him at slip off Trumbull, but McKibben made up for it in his next over when he bowled Mason for three. Wainwright joined McLaren, and the two managed to get through to the end of the day at 1 for 22, still trailing by 498 runs. The next day commenced with the batsmen moving the score on in ones and twos. McLaren got a third life when Trot couldn't hold a ball smashed back at him. Eventually, Trot was hit for consecutive falls by Wainwright, and first replaced himself with McKibben. He couldn't stem the flow of runs either, the score moving past 50. Nobles then switched on in his debut test and immediately brought results, with Wainwright being caught by Jones one-handed at mid-off, out for 21. When one barracker in the crowd had a go at Jones for only using one hand, the fast bowler replied, Well, I miss him sometimes with two hands, but I haven't missed a one-handed catch for 15 years. Ranji, who was well-received by the crowd, joined his fellow first test century maker at 2 for 60. Their stay together was short, though, as McLaren soon after edged the ball from McKibben to Trumbull at slip. The English captain was out for 35, the Australians getting third time lucky with their catching. Hayward came to the crease at 3 for 74. The partnership between the two batsmen would take the English through to lunch with the score at an even 100, with Ranji on 29 and Hayward on 13, although Hayward did survive a confident run-out appeal just before the break. Immediately after lunch, Hayward drove a ball hard to Gregory mid-off. The fielder stopped it, but in doing so opened up a wound on his hand, leading to him being replaced on the field by Harry Donnan. Ranji scored his first boundary of the innings, driving Noble to the fence and followed up by taking Trot for consecutive fours. Runs then came in singles, with the building pressure leading Hayward to come out of his crease, only to miss the ball. 
However, Kelly fumbled an easy stumping chance, leading to him making it back to his ground. He didn't make the most of his life, though, being out shortly after by hitting trot to Jones at mid-off, out for 23. Storer joined Ranji at 4 for 133 and started brightly with two boundaries, whilst Ranji reached his 50 with a single off McKibben. McLeod was tried and nearly got the breakthrough, but dropped a return chance from Storer. The batsman took advantage of this second chance, hitting McLeod for multiple boundaries in the next two overs. These two continued in this bright frame of mind, bringing up the 200 as the tea break was taken. The Australians broke the partnership in the first over after tea, Ranji being bowled by Trumbull for 71. 5 for 203 soon became 6 for 208 as new batsman Hurst was clean bowled by fast button from Jones. Drews joined Storer, who brought up his 50 with a boundary off Trumbull. He was out in the same over though, caught by the keeper. Hearn came to the crease and took a single off his first ball, was then bowled by Jones at the beginning of the next over. This collapse had seen the English go from 4 for 203 to 8 for 224 in only 20 minutes since the tea break. Drews and new batsman Briggs then provided some resistance. The two hit a number of boundaries, McKibben coming in for some harsh punishment. The score raced past 250 whilst the bowlers were rotated. Trot dropped another return chance, this time off Drews. Jones attempted to blast the batsman out with pace, but his efforts led to the umpire Phillips believing he had too much bend in his arm, leading to him being no ball for throwing. Phillips had already done so in a tour match against South Australia, and Jones became the first man no ball for throwing in Test cricket. The two batsmen managed to put on an undefeated partnership of 87 runs as stumps were drawn for the day, with both batsmen having moved into the 40s. At 8 for 311, though, the English still trade by 209 runs, at risk of being asked to follow on. The English could only add four runs to their score on the beginning of day four. Drews was trapped LBW by Trumbull without adding to his overnight score of 44, whilst Richardson was the last wicket to fall when he was bowled by the same bowler. Briggs was left 46 not out, as the English could only reach 315. Trumbull took his wicket's tally to four with his morning's work, whilst McKibben and Jones had two apiece. As expected, Trot asked England to follow on and the pitch was starting to crumble. The English started in a near-identical fashion to the first innings, with Mason being out bowled for three with a score on ten, although this time Trumbull claimed the wicket. Ranji joined McLaren and the two best batsmen in the English side navigated the bowling comfortably, moving the score on to 52 at lunch. Following the break, McLaren took his score on to 38 before Trumbull got his man, the English captain cutting the ball low to Trot at point. Hayward came to the crease as Trot made another bowling change, replacing himself with Noble. This change brought immediate results, with Noble nearly having Ranji playing on before clean bowling him next ball for 27. The English were now 3 for 71. Storer did not last long, becoming Noble's second victim, whilst Hurst was then trapped LBW by Trumbull. Drews joined Hayward at 5 for 80, and the two managed to hold out for a while, taking the English score past 100. Gaining confidence, Drews took Noble to the square leg boundary for 4. This was his last act, though, as he was caught at mid-off trying to loft Noble over the infield. Hayward, who has made his way to 33, was dismissed soon after, becoming Noble's fourth victim. With Wainwright and Briggs now at the crease, the English took T at 7 for 132. Jones dropped Briggs off Noble upon the resumption of play, but this didn't hurt the Australians' march to victory too much. Noble claimed his fifth wicket when he bowled Wainwright for 11. He claimed his sixth when Hearn was caught at mid-off for a duck, whilst Trumbull ended the match by having Briggs caught a point for 12. Noble finished with outstanding figures in his test debut match, claiming 6-49, whilst Trumbull claimed the other four to finish with eight for the match. The English second innings of 150 meant they had lost the match by an innings and 55 runs, reversing a result of the first test and levelling the series at one apiece. This is the end of part one of our episode covering the 1897-98 tour by England. Part two, where the exciting conclusion the series will play out, will be released next week. 
Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.